Uh, some of you have been wondering why I decided to go all Fred Rogers on you this morning. Uh, my wife and I are getting some work done in our house, and it's taking a little longer than we thought, so we're locked out, so I can't get into my closet, so I've been wearing this all week. <laughs> so I'll just say, uh, hello there, neighbor. Welcome to you. Uh, we're continuing our series in Luke, and this morning we're going to be looking at uh, a pretty familiar story. If you grew up in Sunday school, uh, or perhaps if you just kind of know about churchy things, uh, this is one of those stories that a lot of us have heard about or heard and seen the little flannel graph pictures, and it's the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. And odds are, if, if your Sunday school was anything like mine, there's a good chance that you have missed the radical nature of this story. I'm going to read it for us, and we'll get started. This is the gospel reading from Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, as I said, this passage is a little more radical than what we've often grown used to in our Sunday school tellings of Zacchaeus. So it's going to take us a little bit of work to kind of uncover our assumptions about who this guy is and what Jesus' interaction with him actually means. So we're going to look at our passage this morning by thinking through a few different ideas, the first of which is the rules of engagement. Then we'll look at Zac the stony camel, and we'll end by reimagining mission. Let's begin with the rules of engagement. The church is under attack on all sides. And much of the danger comes from the fact that our young people are developing dangerous associations. Now, so began the chapel speaker for the day. I had heard this same basic idea taught over and over growing up in the church. And I was raised to believe that one of the basic propositions of Christianity is separation. And people like this chapel speaker of that day in college would base this idea on things that are said in good King James Version language. Come out from among them and be ye separate, or be ye holy, for I am holy. These are things taken out of the Old and New Testament. And the basic idea was that the church is not to get caught up in worldly things, and therefore, by extension... Church people should not engage in in relationships that could start to unravel them with worldly people. But this particular chapel session, this speaker was especially concerned, especially zealous that we really understand just how dangerous it can be to not separate from the world around us. So he proposed the following schematic. 
Billy is worldly. Therefore, as a good Christian, I cannot associate with Billy. Johnny, however, is a good Christian, but he does associate with Billy. Therefore, if I want to remain unstained, not only can I not be friends with Billy, I can't be friends with Johnny. Because Johnny associates with Billy, and Billy is worldly. Now, without a chart, it's going to be tough for me to to continue, but this guy went on and on so that you couldn't even be friends with a friend of a friend of a friend. It was like six degrees to Kevin Bacon, but with this weird Christian uh, version. Now, obviously, as, as we all know by now, I grew up in some kind of strange circles, and it's, it feels a bit like a caricature, caricature at times, and I doubt that even the, the most churchy among us here would think that that's an okay way to go about life. But the point is that we all have rules of engagement for our communities, rules that aren't written down anywhere, rules that often go unspoken, and yet they are there all the same in every community that we inhabit. If you consider yourself to be open-minded and liberal, odds are you're not going to be rushing up to your Drudge Report Fox News uncle at the family barbecue and talking about where Barack Obama was born. I mean, you might do it for the laughs, but you're not going to go up and talk to him for some really intelligent conversation because you see him as an enemy, as different, as dumber than you. Likewise, if you consider yourself to be conservative, you look across at these really half-baked ideas across the aisle and you wonder, how can anyone actually buy that? And so when your sister starts to say, oh, the government should do something about that, it's tough to not roll your eyes and walk away. Now, obviously that is a simplistic caricature of American political life. And when I say it that way, things can seem very benign. But when you begin to see things that you value, that are tied to the very core of your identity, get trampled in the public square, it feels like you're fighting just to exist. And really, what we're looking at this morning in the story of Zacchaeus is how we form our identity, especially those of us that are part of the church, how we form our identity and how our identity informs our mission. And what I hope that we'll realize is that the rules of engagement that we have been given by our culture, perhaps especially our church culture, they need to be reassessed, reassessed in the light of Jesus and his mission. I grew up in a small country church in rural Oregon, and there was a guy that we'll we'll say his name was Martin, and he was uh, a racial minority in a very predominantly white part of the country um, and a very white church. Um, And he was a Sunday school teacher, but he was a little bit rough around the edges, and he tried, you know, he he had uh, some job problems and that sort of thing. But uh, one week, we found out that, that Martin was being accused of some sort of sexual impropriety by someone at work, and he was being sued. And so as he began to kind of tell his side of the story, our church decided to rally around him. And they actually, a group of rather you know, poor rural people decided to, to pool their resources and build this guy a defense fund. And I, as, if memory serves, I think it actually worked. I think that he went to trial and it, and it turned out that the charges didn't really have much basis. And so we were all pretty overjoyed and it was so great to see the church kind of rally around this guy. And it might have been a year or two later that my dad got off the phone, and he was, he was an elder in our church, and I don't think that he said it to me this way, but what I remember is hearing, basically, your sister's Sunday school teacher was just arrested for soliciting prostitution. Now, as I said, my parents were pretty involved in our church, and it was very small, so I had a way of kind of sniffing these things out pretty quickly. 
Hearing about these sorts of scandals in a small town and a small church is not hard to do. And what I remember as a 13-year-old, watching our church try to deal with Martin, who, who we had believed in this earlier time, and now it seemed that we had been played. As we were trying to deal with this big, weird thing, what I can remember most is seeing the women of our church recoil in horror as Martin came around. I remember hearing the men in our church tell my dad that they didn't want him around their kids, they didn't want him around themselves, and they just didn't want him around, period. So Martin tries to work out his repentance. He comes back. His wife tries to forgive him and take him back into their family. But I remember watching this sort of slow burn as our church subtly and not so subtly made it clear that Martin's issues were too deep too weird and just too damnably sinful for him to remain part of our community. So Martin and his family left our church and tried attending somewhere a little bit bigger, somewhere where someone didn't know their story, where they could just sort of blend in. Within a few months, Martin and his wife were divorced, and as far as I know, Martin has never really gone back to church. Zacchaeus according to our Sunday school stories, was just a wee little man who was so excited to see Jesus that he climbed up a tree like a little kid. But as we were wont to do in our own histories, we have cleaned up Zacchaeus far too much because he was really the sort of guy that we would all love to hate. And Luke is doing an interesting thing in this story because throughout this section of his gospel, as Jesus has told stories and interacted with tax collectors, the most hated people in their culture, tax collectors have sort of kind of gotten off easy, we would think. Jesus has embraced them and given them love, and a lot of them have changed their lives. And then when we see Jesus interacting with the rich, the people that were well-respected by their community, he seems to be very harsh toward them. The stories that he tells aren't very redeeming. They're not very positive. So when Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and rich, our ears should start to perk up. We should start to wonder what's going to happen. Is he going to be embraced by Jesus, or is he going to walk away rejecting the message of Jesus? In many ways, the interaction between Zacchaeus and Jesus for the onlooker is a disaster. Because if we see ourselves as part of this crowd that is watching this take place, we would understand that if if Zacchaeus were here today, he would be harangued by the Tea Party and the Occupy movement alike. He's a big government, tax-and-spend sort of guy, and at the same time, he's sort of a rich banker type preying on the poor to support his own lavish lifestyle. Everyone hates this guy. To use Luke's descriptors, Zacchaeus is a stony camel. If you were here with us last week, you'll remember that just prior to this story, Jesus has an interaction with the rich young ruler. And he says that for rich people to enter the kingdom of God would require a miracle on par with getting a camel through the eye of a needle. Zacchaeus is just such a camel. But he's also a stone. Zacchaeus has sold out his people, not for ideology, but for money. And he's been so good at selling out his people that now he's the boss of the sellouts. He's the chief tax collector. This guy no longer has any standing within the community of God's people, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. He has proven himself in their eyes to not be a true child of Abraham because he is a traitor and he is feasting upon the poor of God's people. Now, this is way too long ago for us to remember, but way back at the beginning of Luke, 
We were introduced to John the Baptist, the great prophet who prepared Israel for the ministry of Jesus. And at one point, John stands before the crowd, and with no uncertain anger, he tells them that their rule-keeping would not keep them safe. Their pedigree would not save them. Their historical lineage that links them to Abraham racially would not be enough to spare them when God came. After all, John says, God could raise up children for Abraham from these stones. And Zacchaeus is just such a stone. He's a stone and a camel, and he is impossible to love because he never changes. He always does the wrong thing, and he continues to sell out his people. And yet Jesus walks into Jericho, the city of priests, and rather than sitting down for a meal with one of the respectable religious leaders, he walks up to the worst guy in town and says, let's hang out. Now up to this point, only the the religious leaders have grumbled against Jesus in Luke. But now the entire crowd has had enough. The entire crowd begins to murmur, he's going to be the guest of a sinner. Just like my church growing up, this community had rules of engagement, unspoken assumptions about who was okay to hang out with and who wasn't. And the shock, if we'll allow Luke to shock us, is that the community's standard of association was on a wildly different page than the God that they claimed to follow. I wonder, as a church, what are our rules of engagement? What are our standards of association? Who meets those standards and who fails? Do we functionally disassociate ourselves from people whose theology is not on par with our own? Do we hold people with morality that falls short of our own at an arm's length? Have we begun to think of ourselves primarily as those who are clutching onto moral and doctrinal purity, surrounded by enemies, surrounded by pariahs and traitors and Zacchaeuses, forced to fight for our own preservation? Or will we base our identity on something else? And I think that as we see how Jesus interacts with this outcast, with Zacchaeus, that we will, we will be forced to start reimagining our mission. Because in this story, Luke pulls back the curtain for us to see clearly what Jesus has been up to, what he's doing on his way to Jerusalem as he goes to die. And it's in the words of Jesus himself, he has come to seek and to save the lost. It's that simple. Jesus didn't come to find people who need improvement. He didn't come to create a new round table of morality. He didn't come to give the people who were in a sense of security, a sense of achievement. Jesus has not come to make us rich and happy. He hasn't come to help us learn how to accept ourselves. He hasn't come to trounce on the people that we think are our enemies. Jesus came to seek out horrible, disgusting, nasty, awful, sinful, lost people. And he came to work a miracle in them, to save them, to take them in and embrace them. As I said, Zacchaeus comes on the heels of that story with the rich young ruler, and he's sort of a retelling of that story. But this time, instead of the rich man going away sad, he's instead filled with joy as Jesus embraces him. And the reason for this is because where Jesus is, there is salvation. At the beginning of our story, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. At the end of our story, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today. Where Jesus is, there is salvation. And Luke continues to tie together a bunch of other themes that he's been developing in his gospel. 
We see Zacchaeus climbs up into a tree to see Jesus, and as Jesus gives him life, Zacchaeus himself becomes a tree that bears fruit, just as John the Baptist had prophesied. The restitution that Zacchaeus makes, giving away half of his goods and repaying four times those that he had cheated, gets right to the heart of the law. It goes beyond what the law required and instead reminds us of the conversation that Jesus had in Luke chapter 10, that all of the law, people that are in the kingdom of God that really get it, understand that the law is about loving God and loving others. And the way that Zacchaeus shows that he has been loved by God and has love for God is by giving his money away to those who need it. Zacchaeus isn't just a retelling of the rich young ruler with a positive ending. He's also a real-life enactment of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Only now, unlike in the parable when the tax collector goes to the temple, in this story, the temple, the true temple, Jesus himself comes to the tax collector. And if we'll allow it, this story will draw us back into many of the earlier parables, especially the parables of lostness. The parable of the prodigal son, the lost sheep, the lost coin. And Luke, in tying all of these things together, is trying to get us to understand not just something about the way that the gospel works, but something about the very nature of God. God has yoked himself with his world. He has covenanted with his creation to be a husband and father, and he is not content to simply stand far off and beckon his rebellious people to come to him. No, he becomes incarnate. He enters into places of fear and loss and darkness and death, and he begins the work of new creation in backwards, hopeless people. He walks right up to people like Zacchaeus, to people like you and I, serial sinners, annoying addicts, treacherous traitors, people who have been given up on by everyone else in their community as hard-case lost causes, And he hands us something that we have never before been given. True love. True acceptance. But he gives something more than just that. He gives life. The life that he gives to Zacchaeus. The miracle of being a camel in the eye of a needle. The impossibility of a stone becoming a child of Abraham. All hangs on the reality that Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem to die. You see, the nature of God, the character of God, and the mission of God are not some feel-goodery that that just wraps up Christmas presents for underprivileged kids when they have extra time around the holidays. No, the mission of God is a radical self-giving unlike anything the world has ever seen. And Luke is trying to tell us something at two different levels. The first is that Jesus is the kind of God who invites himself into our lives at the very moment of our dysfunction, at the very moment of our long, drawn-out rebellion. That is when Jesus enters in and says, you are loved and accepted. Perhaps you have been told your whole life that you are unlovely and unlovable because you continue to fail everyone around you. Jesus is still inviting himself over. He's still inviting himself into your life and telling you that he loves you as you are. He accepts you as you are. But the second thing that Luke wants us to understand is that if if you are a Christian, this is now at the core of your identity. You have been united with Christ. Your life is now tied in with a God who gives up everything to seek out hopeless, lost cause people. This is how we begin to reimagine mission. Because this is what the church is built upon. 
And if we as the church refuse, due to our superior standard of association, due to our morally pure rules of engagement, if we refuse to engage and inhabit the lives of horrible, broken, hopeless people that have no chance of change, we will never see God do the impossible. But if we want to truly embrace what my chapel speaker so long ago thought he was getting at and be holy because God is holy, and we will begin to see that holiness, yes, it has an, action, an, an aspect of moral purity, but largely it has an aspect of being set apart for a purpose. And this is the purpose we've been set apart for. Because if we can accept the premise that we are those hard case, lost cause people, and if we can accept that God has seen fit to throw away his life on us, then as the Holy Spirit begins to work new creation within us, we will begin to throw our lives away on other lost cause people. And we'll find, in the end, that in losing our lives, we have gained them. It would be so wonderful to end right there. Isn't that satisfying? Losing our lives, we've gained them. The reality is, If we as a church were to truly embrace this kind of mission, the crowds around us will start to murmur. They'll start to gossip and sneer and wonder if we've lost all of our standards, if we'll just allow anyone into our association. And it seems with some distance that that wouldn't be uh, too difficult. It would be somewhat easy to take, but it won't be. It's going to hurt when family and friends, and perhaps other Christians begin to question your sanity and impugn your motives and pull back from you because of your murky standard of association. I know for a fact that it won't be easy because the guy that started this whole thing got murdered. Friends, the love and grace and mercy of Jesus are like a rushing river. And too often we think that it's our job to hold on to it, to capture it, and we can form ourselves into a dam and the water will become dank and murky and disgusting because we're holding back something that we were never meant to. Instead, if we could envision ourselves as a fire hose with a diffuser around the end, we will be continually refreshed, finding ourselves saturated and soaked in the mercy and love of Jesus as we pass it on to people around us and inhabit the lives of people like Zacchaeus. Let's pray together. Father, it is difficult enough for us to envision ourselves as as people that are as awful as a Zacchaeus. And as Brian uh, hinted at earlier, it is so easy for us to just sweep those things under the carpet and not truly be honest in our relationship with you. And yet, if we by the power of your spirit, can come to that place of honesty and realize that we have nothing in ourselves that makes us worthy of your love and acceptance, and yet it is there all the same. That will begin to change us. I ask that as we come to your table, that your love would enter us in a newer, deeper way than ever before, and that as a result, we would go out of this place as people that have been lit on fire for your mission. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.